गहिनते डाले रे दुखिनी डाके Welcome back, listeners, to Sandman Stories Presents, a folklore podcast where I read you to sleep or until the next story. I'm your host, Dustin. Today we are back in the Panchatantra in the first book called Loss of Friends. This is chapter 11, and it's called The Weaver Who Loved a Princess. In the last chapter, it was the story of the rabbit outwitting the much more powerful lion. This time around, we get the very long story of a weaver who gets a princess to love him back through a bit of trickery. It is also the longest story in the book called Loss of Friends. So, hang on. And in this chapter, Victor is telling the story to show that even if you're being deceitful, it's the outcome that matters. Okay, let's begin. Chapter 11. The Weaver Who Loved a Princess Inside the molasses belt, there was a city called Sugarcane City. In it lived two friends, a weaver and a carpenter. Since they were both masters in their respective crafts, they had earned enough money by their labors that they kept no account of receipt and expenditure. They wore soft, gaily-covered, expensive garments, adorned themselves with flowers and betel leaves, and diffused odors of camphor, aloes, and musk. They worked nine hours a day, after which they adorned their persons and met for recreation in such places as public squares or temples. They made the rounds of the spots where society gathered. Theaters, conversaciones, birthday parties, banquets, and the like, then went home at twilight. And so time passed. One day there was a great festival, an occasion when the entire population, wearing the finest ornaments that one could afford, began sauntering through the temples of the gods and other public places. The weaver and the carpenter, like the rest, put on their best things and in squares and courtyards inspected the faces of the people dressed to kill. And then they caught a glimpse of a princess seated at the window of a stucco palace. The vicinity of her heart was made lovely by a firm bosom with the curve of early youth. Below her slender waist was a graceful swell of her hips. Her hair was black as rain cloud, soft, glossy, and with a billowy curl. A golden earring danced below an ear that seemed like a hammock where love might swing. Her face had the charm of a new-blown tender water lily. Like a dream, she captured the eyes of all as she sat surrounded by girlfriends. And the weaver, ravished by lavish loveliness, since the love god had pierced his heart with five fierce arrows, concealed his feelings by supreme effort of resolution and tottered home, seeing nothing but the princess in the whole horizon. With long-drawn burning sighs he tumbled on the bed, though it was still messy, and there he lay. He perceived, he thought of nothing but her, just as he had seen her, and there he lay, reciting poetry. Virtues with beauty dwell, so poets sing, this contradiction not considering, that she, so cruel sweet, far, far apart, tortures my body still, still in my heart. Or does this explain it? One heart my darling took, one pines as if to die, one throbs with pure feeling, how many hearts have I? And yet, 
If all the world from virtue draws, a blessing and a gain, why should all virtue in my maid, my fawn-eyed maid in pain? Each guard his home, they say, yet in my heart you stay, burning your home away, sweet heartless one. That these, her bosom's youthful pride, her curling hair, her sinuous side, her blood-red lip, her waist so small, should hurt me, is not strange at all. But that her cheeks so clear, so bright, should torture me, is far from right. Her bosom, like an elephant's brow, swells, saffron-scented, how, oh, how? May I thereon my bosom lay, when weary love is tired of play, so fettered in her arms to keep, a vigil half waking, half sleep. If fate has willed that I should die, are there no means save that soft eye? You see, my love, though far apart, before you ever, oh, my heart, should vision cease to satisfy, oh, teach your magic to my eye. For even her presence will distress, if brought by too great loneliness, since none, the merciful are blessed, of selfishness may stand confessed. She stole the luster from the moon, the moon is dull and cold, the lily sheen is in her eyes, no charge of theft will hold. The elephant's majesty she seized, she knows not of her art, from me the slender maiden took, ah, strange, a feeling heart. In middle air I see my love, on earth below, in heaven above, in life's last hour, on her I call, she is like Vishnu, all in all. All mental states the Buddha said are transient, he was wrong, my meditations on my love are infinitely long. In such lamentations his thoughts tossing to and fro, the night dragged away drearily. On the next day, at the customary hour, the carpenter, wearing an elegant costume, came as usual to the weaver's house. There he found the weaver, with his arms and legs sprawled all over an unmade bed, heard his long, drawn-out, burning sighs, and noticed his pallid cheeks and trickling tears. Finding him in this condition, he said, My friend, my friend, why are you in such a state today? But the poor weaver, though he was questioned repeatedly, was too embarrassed to say a word. At last, the carpenter grew weary and dropped into poetry. No friend is he whose anger compels a timid languor, nor he whom almost anxiously attend. But when you trust another, as if he were your mother, he is no mere acquaintance, but a friend. Then, after examining the weaver's heart and other parts with hands skilled in detecting symptoms, he said, Comrade, if my diagnosis is correct, your condition is not the result of fever, but of love. Now when his friend voluntarily introduced the subject, the weaver sat up in bed and recited a stanza of poetry. You find repose in sore disaster by telling things to dear-eyed master, to virtuous servant, gentle friend, or wife who loves you to the end. Then he related his whole experience from the moment he laid eyes on the princess, and the carpenter, after some reflection, said, The king belongs to the warrior caste, while you are a businessman. Have you no reverence for the holy law? But the weaver replied, The holy law allows a warrior three wives. The girl may be the daughter of a woman of my caste. That may explain my love for her. What says the king in the play? Surely she may become a warrior's bride. Else why these longings in an honest mind, the motions of the blameless heart decide, of right and wrong, when reason leaves us blind. 
Thereupon the carpenter, perceiving his determined purpose, said, Comrade, what is to be done next? And the weaver answered, I don't know. I told you because you are my friend. And to this he would not add a word. At last the carpenter said, Rise, bathe, eat. Say farewell to despondency. I will invent something such that you will enjoy with her the delights of love without the loss of time. Then the weaver, hope reviving at his friend's promise, rose and returned to seeming lively. And the next day the carpenter came, bringing a brand new mechanical bird, like Garuda, the bird of Vishnu. It was made of wood, was gaily painted in many colors, and had an ingenious arrangement of plugs. Comrade, he said to the weaver, when you mount the bird and insert a plug, it goes wherever you wish, and it lands on the spot where you pull out the plug. It is yours. This very night, when people are asleep, dress up, disguise yourself as Vishnu. My wit and skill are at your service. Mount this Garuda bird, land on the maiden's balcony of the palace, and make whatever arrangements you like with the princess. I have ascertained that the princess sleeps alone on the palace balcony. When the carpenter had gone, the weaver spent the rest of the day in a hundred fond imaginings. He took a bath, used incense, powders, ointments, betel, breath mints, flowers, and so forth. He put on gay garlands and garments, rich in fragrance. He adorned himself with a diadem and other jewelry, and when the night came clear, he followed the carpenter's instructions. Meanwhile, the princess lay in her bed alone on the palace balcony, bathed in moonbeams. She gazed at the moon, her mind idly dallying with the thought of love. All at once, she spied the weaver, disguised as Vishnu, mounted on his heavenly bird. At the sight of him, she started from her bed, knelt at his feet, and humbly said, O oh Lord, why am I honored by your visit? Please command me. What am I to do? The weaver answered the princess's words while pretending to be Lord Vishnu. You, my dear maiden, are the occasion for this visit to earth. But I am merely a mortal girl, she said. He continued, No, you were once my bride, now fallen to earth because of a curse. It is I who has so long protected you from contact with men. I will now wed you by the ceremony used in heaven. And she assented, for she thought, This is beyond my wildest aspirations. And he married her by the ceremony used in heaven. So day after day, in the enjoyment of love's delights, each day witnessed a growth in passion. Before dawn the weaver would mount his mechanical Garuda and would bid farewell with the words, I depart for Vishnu's heaven, and would always return to his homestead undetected. One day, the guard at the women's quarters observed indications that the princess was meeting a man, and in fear for their very lives, they made a report to their master. Oh, king, they said, be gracious and confirm our personal security. There is a disclosure to be made. And when the king assented, the guards reported, Oh, king, we have used extra care to forbid the entrance of men, yet indications are that Princess Lovely has had meetings with a man. It is not something that we can take measures against. The king, the king alone is the prime mover. Upon this information, the king pondered with troubled spirit. You are worried when you hear she is born. Picking husbands makes you anxious and forlorn. When she marries, will her husband be a churl? It is tough to be the father of a girl. Again, 
At her birth, she steals away her mother's heart. Loving friends when she is older fall apart. Even married, she is apt to bring stain. Having daughters is a business full of pain. Again, when a poem or daughter comes out, the author is troubled with doubt, with a doubt that his questions betray. Will she reach the right hands? Will she please as she stands? And what will the critics say? Having thus considered the matter from every point of view, he sought the queen and said, My dear queen, please pay careful attention to what these chamberlains have to say. Who is this offender whom the death god seeks today? Now when they had related the facts, the queen hastened, while greatly perturbed, to the maiden's apartment, and found her daughter with lips sore from kissing, and with telltale traces on her limbs. And she cried, You wicked girl! You are a disgrace to the family! How could you throw your character away? Who is the man that comes to you? The death god has looked upon him. Dreadful as things are, at least tell the truth. Then the princess, shamefaced and with drooping glances, recounted the story of the weaver disguised as Vishnu. Thereupon the queen, with a laughing countenance and thrilling in every limb, hastened to the king and said, O oh, king, you are indeed fortunate. It is blessed Vishnu who comes each night in person to our daughter's side. He has married her by the ceremony used in heaven. This very night you and I are to hide in the window niche and have sight of him, but with mortals he does not exchange words. On hearing this, the king was glad at heart, and somehow lived through the day, which seemed like one hundred years. When night came, the king and queen stood hidden in the window niche, and waited, their gaze fixed on the sky. Presently, the king espied the lord descending from heaven, mounted on the Garuda, grasping the conch shell, discus, mace, and marked with familiar symbols. And feeling as if drenched by a shower of nectar, he said to the queen, there is no other on earth so blessed as you and I, whose child is the one blessed Vishnu seeks with love. All the desires nearest our hearts are granted. Now through the power of our son-in-law, I shall reduce the whole world to subjugation. At this time, envoys arrived to collect the yearly tribute for King Valor, the monarch of the south, lord of 9,900,000 villages. But the king, proud of his new relationship with Vishnu, did not show them the customary honor so that they grew indignant and said, Come, king, payday is past. Why have you failed to offer the taxes due? It must be that you have recently come into the possession of some unanticipated supernatural power from some source or another, that you irritate King Valor, who is a flame, a whirlwind, a venomous serpent, a death god. Upon this, the king showed them his bare bottom, and they returned to their own country exaggerated the matter a hundred thousandfold, and stirred the wrath of their master. Then the southern monarch, with all his troops and retainers, at the head of an army of all four service branches, marched against the king, and he angrily cried, This king may climb the heavenly mount, he may plunge beneath the sea, and yet, I promise it, the wretch shall soon be slain by me. So Valor reached the country by marching uninterrupted and ravaged it. The inhabitants who survived the slaughter besieged the palace gate of the king of Sugarcane City and taunted him, but what he heard did not cause the king the slightest anxiety. On the following day the forces of King Valor arrived and laid siege to Sugarcane City, whereupon hosts of counselors and chaplains interceded with the king. O oh, king, they said, a powerful enemy has arrived and invested the city. How can the king be so unconcerned? And the king replied, 
You gentlemen may be quite comfortable. I have devised a means of killing this foe. What I am about to do to his army, you too will learn tomorrow morning. After this address, he bade them to provide adequate defense for the walls and gates. Then he summoned Lovely, and with respectful coaxing said, Dear child, relying on your husband's power, we have begun hostilities with the enemy. This very night, please speak with the blessed Vishnu when he comes, so that in the morning he may kill this enemy of ours. So Lovely delivered her father's message that night, complete in every detail. On hearing it, the weaver laughed and said, Dear love, how small of a nothing is this, a mere war with men. Why, in days gone by, I have slain mighty demons by the thousands with the greatest of ease, and they were armed with magic. There was the Hiriana Kashipu, and Kansa, and Madhu, and Kaitaba, to name but a few. Go then and say to the king, Do not be anxious. In the morning Vishnu will slay the host of your enemies with his discus. So she went to the king and proudly told him everything, whereat he was overjoyed and commanded the doorkeeper to have proclamation made by the beat of the drum throughout the city in these words, Whatever you lay your hands on during tomorrow's battle, in the camp of valor slain, whether coin money or grain or gold or elephant or horse or weapon or any other object, that shall remain your personal possession. This proclamation delighted the citizens, so that they gossiped together, saying, This king of ours is a lofty soul, unalarmed even in the presence of the hostile host. He is certain to kill his rival in the morning. Meanwhile, the weaver, forgetting love's allurements, took counsel with his brooding mind. What am I to do now? Suppose I mount the machine and fly away, then I shall never meet my pearl, my wife, again. King Valor will drag her from the palace after killing my poor father-in-law. Yet, if I accept battle, I shall meet death, who puts an end to every heart's desire. But death is mine if I lose her. Why spin it out? Death, sure death, in either case, it is better than to die trying. Besides, it is just as possible that the enemy, if they see me accepting the battle and mounting on the Garuda, will think that I am the genuine Vishnu and flee. For the proverb says, Let resolution guide the great, however desperate his state, however grim his hostile fate. But resolution lifted high, with shrewd decision as ally, he grimly sees grim trouble fly. When the weaver resolved to battle, the genuine Garuda made respectful representations to the genuine Vishnu in heaven. O oh Lord, he said, in a city on earth called Sugarcane is a weaver who, disguising himself as my lord, has wedded a princess. As a result, a more powerful monarch of the south has marched to execute the king of Sugarcane City. Now the weaver today has made his resolution to befriend his father-in-law. This, then, is what I must leave up to your decision. If he meets death in battle, then scandal will arise in the mortal world to the effect that blessed Vishnu has been killed by the king of the south. Thereafter, sacrificial offerings will fail, and other religious ceremonies as well. Then atheists will destroy the temples of the Lord, while pilgrims of the triple staff, devotees of the blessed Vishnu, will abstain from pious journeyings. Such being the condition of affairs, the decision rests with my Lord. Then blessed Vishnu, after exhaustive meditation, spoke to Garuda. O king of the winged, your reasoning is just. This weaver has a spark of divinity in him. Therefore, he must be the slayer of yonder king. And to bring this about, you and I must befriend him. 
my spirit shall enter his body, and you are to inspire his bird, and my discus will be his discus. So be it, said Garuda, assenting. Hereupon the weaver, inspired by Vishnu, gave instructions to Lovely. Dear love, when I set out for battle, prepare everything needed to bless this fight. He then performed auspicious ceremonies, assumed ornaments seemly for battle, and permitted worshipful offerings of yellow pigment, black mustard, flowers, and the like. But when the friend of day-blooming water lilies, the blessed Vishnu, the ten-thousand-beamed sun arose, adorning the bridal brow of the eastern sky, then to the victorious roll of the war drums the king issued from the city and drew near the field of battle. Then both armies formed in an exact array. Then the infantry came to blows. At this moment the weaver, mounted on Garuda, and scattering largest of gold and precious gems, flew from the palace roof toward the heaven's vault, while the townspeople, thrilled with the wonder, gazed and adored. Then flying beyond the city, he hovered above his army, and drew from Vishnu's conch a proud grand burst of martial sound. The blare of the conch, elephants, horses, chariots, foot soldiers, were all dismayed and many garments were fouled. Some screamed shrilly and fled afar. Some rolled on the ground with all movement paralyzed. Some stood stock still with terrified gaze fixed on wavering on heaven. At this point all the gods were drawn to the spot by the curiosity to see the fight. And Indra said to Brahma, Brahma, is this some imp or demon who needs to be slain? For blessed Vishnu, mounted on Garuda, has gone forth to battle in person. At these words Brahma pondered. Lord Vishnu's discus drinks in flood, the hostile demon's gushing blood, and strikes no mortal flat. The jungle lion, who can draw the tusker's life with awful paw, disdains to crush the gnat. What is the meaning of this marvel? Thus Brahma himself was astonished, and that is why I told you, not even Brahma sees the end of well-devised deceit. The weaver, taking Vishnu's form, embraced the princess sweet. While the gods were thus pondering with tense interest, the weaver hurled his discus at valor. This discus, after cutting the king in half, returned to his hand. At that sight, all the kings without exception leaped from their vehicles, and with hands, feet, and heads drooping in limp obeisance, they implored him who bore the form of Vishnu. O oh Lord, an army leaderless is slain. Be mindful of this and spare our lives. Command us, what are we to do? So spoke the whole throngs of kings, until he replied in the form of Vishnu, Your persons are secure henceforth. Whatever commands you receive from the local king, King Stoutmail, you must perform on all occasions without hesitation. And all the kings humbly received his instructions, saying, Let it be as our Lord commands. Thereupon the weaver bestowed on Stoutmail all his rival's wealth, whether men or elephants or chariots or horses or stores of merchandise or other riches, while he himself, having attained the special majesty of those victorious, enjoyed all known delights with the princess. And that is why I say, The gods befriend a man who climbs, determination's height, and the rest of it. Having listened to this, Cheek said, if you are also climbing determination's height, then proceed to the accomplishment of your desire. Blessed be your journey. Thereupon Victor sought the presence of the lion, who said, when Victor had bowed and seated himself, Why has so long a time passed since you were last visible? And Victor answered, O king, 
Urgent business awaits my master today. Hence I am come, the bearer of unwelcome tidings, but wholesome. This is not, indeed, the desire of dependents, who still bring such tidings when they fear the neglect of immediate and necessary action. As the proverb says, When those appointed to advise speak wholesome truth, they cause surprise, by this remarkable excess of passionate devotedness. And again, A man is quickly found, O king, to say the sycophantic thing, but one prepared to hear or speak, unwelcome truth is far to seek. Hereupon Rusty, believing his words worthy of trust, respectfully asked him, What do you wish to imply? And Victor answered, O king, Lively has crept into your confidence with treasonable purpose. On several occasions, he has confidentially whispered in my hearing, I have examined the strong points and the weak in your master's power, in his prestige, his advisors, and his material resources. I plan to kill him and to seize the royal power myself without difficulty. This very day, this lively person intends to carry out his design. That is why I am here to warn the master whose service is mine by inheritance. To Rusty, this report was more terrible than the fall of a thunderbolt. He sank into a panic-stricken stupor and said not a word. Then Victor, comprehending his state of mind, continued, This is the great sadness in the discharge of a counselor's duty. There is wisdom in the saying, When a counselor or king rises higher than he should, fortune strives in vain to make still her double footing good. Being woman feels the strain, soon abandons one of twain. For indeed, with broken sliver, loosened tooth, or counselor who fails in truth, puts roots in all, so only grief will find its permanent relief. And again, no king should ever delegate to one sole man the powers of state, for folly seizes him then pride, whereat he grows dissatisfied. With service, thus impatient grown, he longs to rule the realm alone, and such impatient lodgings bring him into pots to kill this king. Even now, this lively manages his business as he will, without restraint of any kind. Hence the well-known saying finds application. A counselor who tramples through his business though his heart be true, may not unheeded go his way since future days the present pay. But such is the nature of kings, as the poet sings. Some gentle actions born of love to thoughts of active hatred move. Some deeds of traitorous offense win reward of benevolence. The kingly mind can no man tame, as never being twice the same. Such service makes the spirit faint, a hard conundrum for a saint. On hearing this, Rusty said, After all, he is my servant. Why should he experience a change of heart toward me? But Victor answered, Servant or not, there is nothing conclusive in that. For the proverb says, The man who loves not royalty, just serving while he can, find nothing better worth his pains, is not a loyal man. My dear fellow, said the lion, even so, I cannot find it in my heart to turn against him, for, however false or fickle grown, once dear is always dear, who does not love his body, though, decrepit, blemished, queer? And again, his actions may be hard to bear, his speech be harsh to hear, the heart still clings delighted to the person truly dear. For that very reason, retorted Victor, there is a serious flaw in the business of getting on in the world. Observe how this person, upon whom the master has concentrated his consideration to the exclusion of whole company of animals, now desires to become himself the master. 
as the verse puts it. The man of birth or man unknown, if kingly eyes on him alone are fixed, aspires to seize the throne. Therefore, dear though he be, he should be abandoned, being a traitor, like one who has never been dear. There is much wisdom in the saying. Pursue your aim, abandoning the fools inclined to sin, the comrades, brothers, friends, or sons, or honorable kin. You know the song the women sing, we hear it far and near. What good are gold earrings, if they lacerate your ear? And if you fancy that he will bring benefit, because he is bulky of body, you make a perverse mistake. For, How use a proud bull elephant that will not serve the king. A man is better, fat or lean, who does a helpful thing. Again, any pity that our lord and king might feel towards him is quite out of place, for whoever leaves the righteous path for some unrighteous course will meet calamity in time and suffer much remorse. Whoever will not take from friends most excellent advice will gladden foes and falling soon will pay his folly's price. And again, on wicked trick intently bent, the willful still lack ear to hear, so blind their mind of nice and vice, the cause and saws appearing clear. Furthermore, where one will speak and one will heed, what in the end is well, although unpleasant at the time, their riches love to dwell. And again, no king's retainer should devise a fraud for spies or kingly eyes, then bear with harsh as kind, O king, for truth is seldom flattering. Tried servants should be never left, and strangers taken. A kingdom's health by no disease is sooner shaken. My good fellow, said the lion, pray do not say such things, for never publicly defame any once commended name. Broken promises are shame. Now I formerly gave him a safe conduct, since he appeared as a suppliant. How then can he prove ungrateful? But Victor rejoined, No rogue asks reasons for his wrath, nor saint to tread in kindness path. By nature's power, the sweet or sour, in sugar dwells, or nim tree's flower. And again, caress a rascal as you will, he was and is a rascal still. All salve and sweating treatments fail, to take the kink from doggy's tail. And once again, slight kindness shown to lofty souls, a strange enlargement seeks, the moonbeams gleam with whiter light on Himalaya's peaks. While on the other hand, the kindness shown to vicious souls, strange diminution seeks. The gleam of moonbeams is absorbed on sooty mountain peaks. A hundred benefits are lost if lavished on the mean. A hundred epigrams with their true relevance unseen. A hundred counsels when a life obeys no rigid rule. A hundred cogent arguments are lost upon the fool. Lost is everything that goes where it does not fit. Lost is service lavished on a sluggish mind and wit. Lost in ingratitude is the kindest plan. Lost in courtesy on no one is a gentleman. Or put it this way. Perfume offered to a corpse, lotus planting dry, weeping on the wood prolonged, rain on alkali. Taking kinks from doggy's tail, drawl in a deafened ear, decking faces of the blind, sense for fools to hear. Or this way. Milk a bull and then him some heavily uttered cow, blind to lovely maidens, clasp eunuchs anyhow. Seek in shining scraps of quartz, lapis lazuli. Do not serve an adulpate, bidding sense goodbye. Ergo the master must by no means fail to heed my sound advice. And one thing more. 
what tiger, monkey, snake advised, I did not do, and so, that dreadfully ungrateful man has brought me very low. How was that? asked Rusty, and Victor told the story of the ungrateful man. The End That was a whole big ride of the weaver tricking everyone into believing that he was a god, only to have the gods be forced to act. And in the same way, Victor is tricking Rusty into thinking that Lively is going to off him. So I'm excited to see this play out. I was a bit disappointed by all the, oh, it's so terrible to have a daughter. Oh my gosh, having a daughter, it's terrible. What are the men going to do? That's a terrible way to think. So I'm glad this is, you know, thousands of years outdated. Still, I'm really excited about where this goes next. And I'm really enjoying this set of tales. So thank you very much to my friend Ripu who put me up on the Panchatantra. Okay, thank you, and good night.